So if you would find the epistle of James right after the book of Hebrews in your New Testament and stand to honor the reading of God's Word and remain standing for just a moment of prayer. I want to read tonight from James chapter 2 and then I want you to mark James chapter 2 and go back to Romans 8. And we're going to, you'll see why we're going to James 2 in just a moment because we need to come to an understanding about James and Paul and this whole issue of justification. For those whom God foreknew, He predestined, and those whom He predestined, He called, and those whom He called, He justified. And so now we need to try to figure out how do we understand James's view of justification in light of Paul's view of justification. So James chapter 2. Let's pick up in verse 20. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac for his son on the altar? You see that faith is working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the Scripture was fulfilled which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he, has, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Let's pray. Father, as we come and we harmonize Paul and James, who were not at odds with one another, who believed in the same Jesus, who wrote under the inspiration of the same Spirit, who understood the same doctrine the same way, but were dealing with opposing enemies, help us tonight to understand Your Word, for it not to be confusing to us, Lord God. Help us to not be those that are simple-minded and twist the Scriptures to our own destruction or throw up our hands in, in a sense of frustration and say, well, how can we know? God, we can know. Your Word is clear. If we will just do a little work of reasoning and referencing and understanding from Your book, I pray that tonight, Lord God, we would get a good grasp on how Paul and James were on the same team preaching the same truth. In Christ's name, Amen. This morning we spent the entire time defining justification and determining the means for appropriating our just standing before God. In, in a real concise summary statement, we closed with that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But a good Bible student who knows their Bible well and knows anything about the book of James would ask me tonight at Coffee, Cokes, and Questions, Pastor Charlie, what do we do with James 2 in light of your preaching this morning on the doctrine of justification that we are saved by grace through faith? Let me tell you that James was a book that gave Martin Luther fits. Luther after he had come to faith in Christ, took the epistle of James from his translation of the Scriptures and cut it from the book and put it in the back and called it an epistle of straw. Chaff. Now, by the end of his life, he didn't have scotch tape, but he essentially taped it back in and said, Okay, James and I have shaken hands and I understand him now. I, all right, James, I'm not going to be angry with you when I get to heaven. In essence, was Luther's take on James. And if you, if you have any, if you have had very little training or if you have any misunderstanding of the doctrine of justification at all, the text that I just read to you has had to make some of your eyebrows say, Wow! What's that about? What do we do with that? 
I mean, in light of passages like Romans 3.28, where Paul said that we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That's what he says. Direct quote. Or it's 4, 4 and 5, where he says, Now to the one who works, his wage is not counted as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. How can this be harmonized with James 2.24? You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. I mean, it appears as though we have a blatant contradiction. We don't. In fact, one of the principles that we have to come to the Scriptures with if we're going to understand God's Word is that they are infallible, inerrant Word of God that is true and not contradictory. And see, the problem that many people have is that when they read something in the Scriptures that appears contradictory, their first assumption is that there's a problem with the Bible when the first assumption should be there's a problem with me. If this book is hard to understand or presents truth that I can't seem to reckon in my mind, the problem is not with the writer, the problem is with the reader. And so what I want to try to do is I want to help the reader tonight to help Paul and James shake hands so that we can understand what these two authors had in mind. I mean, what do we do with these two men who seem to be teaching exact opposite truths? How do we harmonize them? See, behind this question is two problems. I've heard many of you ask me this. Problem number one. Some people hear me say that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, and they interpret that to mean that it doesn't matter how you live if you're saved by grace. Well, if you believe that a person is saved entirely by grace and of no effort or work on their, of their own, then, then you're proposing an antinomian view, this view that says, well, as long as you believe in Jesus, you can live any way that you want. And anyone that knows me at all would know I don't believe that at all. And it isn't a matter of what I believe, it's a matter of what does the Bible say. I mean, Paul says, well, if, 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 if grace covers sin, then let's just sin all the more, right? May it never be. Paul says, no, absolutely not. That's not the case. So then the opposite side of that argument says, well, if works do play a role, then if we don't work, we won't be saved. And that's wrong too. That's called legalism. You see, the problem is, if works are somehow factored in to whether you are legally declared just or not, how many works? Because there's somebody who always has more than you. And now, in your behalf, you don't always bring up someone who has more than you. You always bring up someone who has less than you. They must not be saved. Look at them. They don't come back on Sunday night. And those people say, well, they must not be saved. They don't come to Sunday school. And those people say, well, they must not be saved because they only come once a month. We come twice a month. Where is the line? If, if works are played into it, where's the line? Smoking is not a determining factor of whether you're in faith or not. Yet, yet some people look at someone that's smoking and say, how can they be a Christian and they smoke? Well, do you drink coffee every morning? It just so happens that your addiction is private and nobody sees it. You see, we've got to be real careful when we start pointing a finger and saying, because they do this, they must not be saved. Or because they don't do this, they must not be saved. That is not the issue. And Satan would have us to focus on the things that are not the issue. The issue is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that is the consistent teaching from Genesis to Revelation. Even James and Paul teach that. My aim tonight is to broaden your understanding of justification and to help you to understand where James and Paul meet in the middle. And I want to do this by doing something that's a little bit risky in this format of preaching because it's somewhat luxury. I was told this morning I was a little luxury. Um, I was told that by a good source, though. Not all of you could tell me that, and me take it as well. Those that you love can. All right. So I'm going to say I'm going to give up. I'm going to give a disclaimer on the front end that this may seem a little luxury, but I want to also give this disclaimer. You ought to take notes because. This is worth grasping and understanding so that we can figure out where are Paul and James going to meet 
in the middle. Alright? I want to do it by contrasting some passages of Scripture. Like, let's begin by... You've got your Bible marked in James. Mark James chapter 2. It'll be the hardest to find because it's the shortest epistle. Romans and Genesis are easy. And we're going to go between Genesis to Romans to James. And we're going to go back and forth between all three books for the entire message. Let's begin right now with Romans chapter 4. And let's read all of Romans chapter 4 and let me pause in the middle of it and make some, some observations. Romans chapter 4. Let me read all of it from the New American Standard. Follow along with your copy of the Scriptures and I'll point out some things as we go. What then shall we say that Abraham our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him, it was credited to him as righteousness. It's important that you understand where Paul is quoting from here. He's quoting from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, which is the ratification of the unconditional Abrahamic covenant. We're going to go there in a minute. Don't turn there yet. We're going to go there in just a minute. It's important that what you get here is that Paul is saying Abraham was justified by faith, not by works. Now, the rest of the chapter is Paul unpacking this illustration of Abraham and justification. Verse 4, Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And then he begins to quote Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. He's not going to hold it against him. Why? Because another work... See, man's work of sin is going to be not held against him because Christ's work of righteousness is going to be credited to this man's account. It's going to be what we call imputed to him. Given to him just as, it, it, just as if it is his own. Keep reading, verse 9. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or the uncircumcised also? For we say... Faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. There it is again. Credited or imputed or, or reckoned to him. Now, he, now he's going to raise another argument here. And that is this whole issue of the sign of the covenant. Do you remember what the sign of the Old Testament covenant was? Circumcision. Which was a work. Baptism is also a work. You may equate baptism and circumcision. Circumcision is a sign of the Old Testament covenant and baptism is a sign of the New Testament covenant. And so what Paul's going to do now is he's going to begin to ask, so where does the work come into play? Look in verses 9 or verses 10 and following. How then was it credited? How then was what credited, by the way? His faith, his righteousness, his justification. When was it credited to him? Is what essence is what Paul is asking. Paul's saying, when did God look at Abraham and pick up his gavel and say, justified? Was it before he was circumcised or after? And let me go a little bit step further into the New Testament side. Was it before he was baptized or after? Here's the whole argument. Read it. Look, look in your text with me. He says, How then is it credited, verse 10, while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Before he had the mark of the covenant. He was saved before he was circumcised. You and I are saved before we are baptized. This pool doesn't wash away your sin. The blood of Christ wash away your sin. This pool is the picture of what has taken place in the realm of spirituality. Notice what he says in verse 11. And he, that's Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. Get it? When did he have faith? Before he was circumcised. So that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. There's that word credited again. Imputed given into their account. 
And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. For the promise to Abraham, or to his descendants, that he would be heir of the world, was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Let me explain that to you. When did the law come into play? Hundreds of years after Abraham. But when was the promise that people from every tribe and tongue and nation would be saved? Hundreds of years before the law. It came by the faith credited to Abraham by the unconditional Abrahamic covenant. It was not by the law. It was long before the law. Abraham didn't have the law. Moses is the author of the Pentateuch. Moses is the one that is writing about Abraham. But Abraham was justified by grace, through faith, on credit, as Paul would say, in hope of the Messiah before he ever had circumcision. In fact, I'll go ahead and tell you, he, won't, he will not get the sign of circumcision until 13 years later. Some of you have come to faith in Christ. You've not followed through with baptism. You don't have Abraham's excuse. Abraham's excuse was God had not given him the sign of the covenant until 13 years later. God has given you the sign of the covenant. And therefore, you should follow through with believer's baptism as soon as possible after conversion. Why? Because that's the teaching of the Scriptures. Repent and be baptized. That's the order in which it comes. Let's keep reading. Let's work on the, through the rest. Verse 16. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations, I've made you. In the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. There's that, there's that implication there of, you being dead and having faith when, you, when it does not exist in you, that God calls it into existence to you. In hope against hope he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to what that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. In other words, he had no reason to believe that God would do it, especially in the sense that he was a hundred years old, and it was physically incapable in his day as it would be in our day, but he believed by faith that God would complete his promise. And we finish up the chapter. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. The it was faith. Verse 23, Now not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Now Paul makes it clear in Romans chapter 4, that we are justified by faith. Turn to Genesis chapter 15. I want you to see this, even though we've made reference to it. Let's turn to it just for a moment. Turn to Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 12, God shows up to Ur of the Chaldeans, and He calls out a man named Abram, who is 75 years old, and the son of an idol maker. Listen. Abram's, Abram's conversion is a lot like the Apostle Paul's conversion. Paul was on the road to Damascus to persecute the church. He wasn't looking for Jesus. He was looking for those that worshipped Jesus to persecute them. And what did God do? God showed up and regenerated Paul. Paul didn't argue with God. Hold on a second. I wasn't going to church. How dare you show up and try to save me? When God showed up, Paul fell to his face. He knew who Christ was and he was converted. Listen, think about how Abram must have been saved. 
Here's Abram, 75 years old, the son of an idol maker, minding his own business in Ur of the Chaldeans, and God shows up and says, I choose you. Of all of the people in the world, I choose you to come out of Ur of the Chaldeans and to follow me. And so here he comes with his wife and his nephew and what little family they've got, and off they go. But God does not ratify, God does not seal the covenant with Abram until Genesis chapter 15. And in Genesis chapter 15, the Lord makes this unconditional covenant with Abram. Let me help you with understanding something about a covenant. In a traditional covenant, what you would do is you take, let's take a cow, a bull. You cut the bull in half right down the middle. You put half the bull on this side and you put half the bull on this side. And when the covenant is sealed and ratified and you've come to an agreement, the two of you walk through the middle of those two cut halves. And when you walk through those cut halves, what you are saying is, if I violate my portion of this covenant, may I be cut in half like this bull. And the other person is saying, and if I violate my portion of this covenant, may I be cut in half like this bull. And that is a typical covenant that you will see. Genesis 15 is not a typical covenant. Let's pick up and read Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Verse 6, Then he believed in the Lord, and he, that is God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. Right there is Abram's justification. Right there. Abram believed God in that very moment, and he is declared justified. Just like what Paul's talking about in Romans 4. Just like what we've been preaching on for weeks in Romans 8. Just like we looked at this morning, he is justified by faith right there. But we've got to keep reading just a little bit to get a, a broader understanding of this covenant that God is making. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And he said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him, and he cut them in two, and he laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. Do you get it? He sawed them in half, he lays them on an altar. Verse 12, Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. The deep sleep there in Hebrew is an indication of the same kind of sleep that God put Adam in when he took the rib from him and he formed Eve. A deep sleep, as though he were dead. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. Those people that talk about having a personal encounter with God, and they talk about God like He's their buddy. Every person in this book who has a personal encounter with God is fearful and trembling. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed four hundred years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. And then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. Who passed between the pieces? God. Where was Abram? Over there asleep. It's not a conditional covenant. God doesn't say to Abram, Abram, now you walk with me through this covenant. You do your part and I'll do my part. Abram's over there in a deep sleep. 
And God takes what Abram has cut in half and God walks in between that covenant as to say to Abram, Abram, if I don't fulfill the covenant that I have made with you, then may I be cut in half like these animals. This is an unconditional covenant. By the way, the new covenant in Christ is also an unconditional covenant between God the Father and God the Son to save from the golden chain of Romans 8. So when is Abram justified? Right here in Genesis 15. Right? Well, hold on. Let's go back to Genesis 19 again. Or Romans 19 again, just for a moment. Romans 19. Or Romans chapter 4, verse 19. Go back to Romans 4, 19. In Romans 4, 19-22, let's see what Paul has to say here. Without being weak in the faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. And yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness." Now, not for his sake only was it that it was credited to him, but for the sake also to him who it, will, who it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. And he was he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Now, this where Paul is coming back to is the whole aspect of when was Abraham credited as righteous in Genesis 15. But what happens in Genesis 17? Thirteen years later. When is, when is Abram justified? Genesis 15, 6. He believes God. It's credited to him as righteousness. But, but, but Paul picks up on this idea about what about the circumcision? What role does that play? Well, now turn back to Genesis 17. Go back to Genesis 17, 25. <coughs> In Genesis 17, it's 13 years later, and Ishmael his son was 1725. And Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the very same day, Abraham was circumcised, and Ishmael his son, and all the men of his household who were born house who who bought with who were bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. When is Abraham justified? Genesis 15. When is Abraham given the sign of his justification? Genesis 17. Thirteen years later. If we're not careful, you see, what Paul's arguing in Genesis chapter 4 is, you guys think that if you don't keep the law, you're not saved. Doesn't the Abrahamic covenant tell you that we're saved by faith? Wasn't Abraham justified before circumcision was ever given? The Judaizers were saying, "Hey, if you don't have the sign of the if you don't have the sign of the covenant, you're not in the covenant. You're not a believer." So Paul says, "Wait a minute, time out. Back up to Genesis 15 and read. When was Abraham justified? Genesis 15, when God says to him, "I'm going to give you a son." 13 years later, God gives the sign of the covenant. Is the sign of the covenant important? Yes. In fact, it's so important that Moses' two sons who are not circumcised, when Moses is on his way back to Egypt, Moses' wife, Zipporah, circumcises the boys, and the Bible says, had she not done it, God would have killed Moses. Is it important? Yes. Is it essential to salvation? No. Now, that doesn't mean it's not important. That doesn't mean that we look upon the sign of the covenant and say, well, you know, it's really not important if I do it or I don't do it. It is important. It's part, of what it, it's part of what it means to be a believer and follower of Christ. Can you imagine, ladies? Imagine that your husbands ask you to marry him. And you say yes. Whether you have an engagement ring or not, but the day of the wedding comes. And you're, you're about to exchange wedding bands, and, and the minister says, do you have a ring? And he goes, no, I haven't got a ring. Well, why not? Well, that's really not important. What's important is that I make the verbal commitment to her. 
Well, what would you think? You'd probably say, hold on, time out there, big boy. We probably need to talk a little bit if you don't think that the ring is important. Because the ring is important. Although this ring, this piece of gold does not make me married or single. I put it on, I'm not magically married. I take it off, I'm not magically single. It is the symbol of the fidelity and the promise and the covenant that I have made with one woman. Listen, the sign that God gave of circumcision was the outward symbol and sign that they were a distinct people. That they were different from all the other people of the world. It did not save them. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, even though all were baptized into Moses, with most of them, God was not well pleased. The whole book of Hebrews is about how most of them fell in the desert. Did they have the sign of the circumcision? Yes. But they were not saved. Most of them. So Paul says, don't confuse the sign with justification. Now we go back to James 2 again. James 2. I told you back and forth, a little bit teachy here. James 2, 21. Now, look, this is the third time that we are discussing the timing of Abraham's justification. When was Abraham justified? Genesis 15, 6. Paul says in Romans 4, don't think that Abraham was justified in Genesis 17 when God gave him the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision. Now, now notice what James says. James chapter 2, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? When? When he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Now we're beginning to get somewhere. Do you know where that is? Genesis 22. Let's turn there. I want you to see it. Genesis 22. The question that you need to answer, you need to ask and answer right now is, when we turn to Genesis 22, is Abraham justified or not? Is he justified or not? Yes, he's justified. He's justified right now. Abram is justified. He is already a, a believer. He's already in New Testament language saved. He's already in New Testament language born again. When did it happen? Genesis 15, 6. Was Abraham justified in Genesis 17 when God gave him the sign of circumcision? Yes, he was already justified. However, God says, now let me give you a sign to this covenant. Now here we come to Genesis 22. By now, God has given him Isaac. Isaac is big enough. It doesn't, know, doesn't tell us how old he is. Probably somewhere in his, maybe in his late teens or early 20s, because we know in Genesis 23, Sarah dies. She's 127 years old. Probably not long after this incident. So Isaac is at least in his upper teens. Old enough to carry the wood himself. Let's pick up in Genesis 22, 9. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abram built the altar there, and he arranged the wood, and he bound his son Isaac, and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abram stretched out his hand, and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, and he said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I, here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad, and do nothing to him. For no, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went, and he took the ram, and he offered him up for a burnt offering to the place of his son, in place of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, In the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven, and he said, Behold, <clears throat> I'm sorry, and he said, <clears throat> By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed shall all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and they went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. But you got to ask the question. Was Abraham justified here or not? Yes. So what are we to understand? Why does James say, when Abraham offered up Isaac, that's when he was justified. 
Why does he say that? Well, turn back to James 2 and we'll figure out why. Abraham was justified in Genesis 15 when God ratified his unconditional covenant with him. In Genesis 17, when God gave Abraham the sign of circumcision, or was, he, or was he justified in 22? We know that he was justified in Genesis 15, 6 because it tells us. So what is the issue in James 2? You always have to ask, who is the author? Who is the audience? What is the purpose of the writing? Paul was writing Romans, dealing with people who said, you've got to do this, and you've got to do this, and you've got to do this, and you've got to do this, or you're not a follower of Christ. James is writing to believers who were saying, hey, we've read Romans. I don't know whether they were saying that or not, but in contemporary illustration, hey, we've read Romans. We're justified by grace. We don't got to do anything. I don't got to go to church. I don't got to pray. I don't got to read my Bible. I don't got to evangelize. I don't got to discipline my body and make it my slave like Paul said to the Corinthians. I don't got to do any of that. Listen, where grace abounds, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So let's just sin, sin, sin. And James is saying, hold on, time out, wait a minute. You missed it. You messed up. Look, look at James 2.19. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Do you think that the Apostle Paul would say, well, if the demons believe... That's all that it takes is belief, so the demons are even going to be saved. Absolutely not. Paul would not say that. James is addressing a different audience and a different problem than Paul was. So what are we to do? How are we to understand all this time of justification. Was, was Abraham justified in Genesis 15, 6? Was Abraham justified in Genesis 17? Was Abraham justified in Genesis 22? He was justified in Genesis 15, 6, and the evidence of it is Genesis 17 and Genesis 22. Now turn back to Romans chapter 5 and I'll show you. I told you it was risky because of all the turning back and forth. Paul says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justification is a past tense, singular, if you want a good Greek term, punctiliar, a period activity in your life. But it has forever future consequences in your life. You see, Abraham can be said to have been justified in Genesis 17 also. Why? Because it was a genuine deal in Genesis 15. And Abraham can be said by James to have been justified when he offered up his son Isaac. Why? Because it was a genuine deal in Genesis 15 and it was a genuine deal in Genesis 17. So when God puts Abram to the test, what does Abram do? Because Abram has got genuine faith and because Abram's faith is continuing to grow, God can make the test bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger because Abraham's faith is stretched and Abraham's just going to come and meet the occasion. Why? Because God's going to meet him there by grace. See, the problem that we run into is that we meet these people who have made Genesis 15, 6 confessions of faith, but when it comes to Genesis 17 and Genesis 22, they're nowhere to be found. And so we have, we have kind of got this idea that says, well, they've lost it. No, 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 no. They didn't lose it. They didn't have anything to lose. They never had it. And don't make the mistake of thinking, if you've got to keep on to keep it, you didn't do anything to get it. You can't do anything to lose it. And if you've got it, you'll do plenty. That's, that's the biblical reasoning. Genuine salvation produces perseverance to the end. Mark 13, 13. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This whole idea of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saint or the doctrine of eternal security or horrible 
terminology, once saved, always saved, has been grossly misunderstood. It's misunderstood by those who are really not thinking through things theologically. And so they say, well, those Baptists believe in once saved, always saved. They believe that you can just make a profession of faith and go out and live like the devil. No, we don't. No, we don't. What we believe is that everyone whom God foreknows, He predestines, and everyone that He predestines, He calls, and everyone that He calls, He justifies. And if God has justified you, guess what? You will be sanctified. Because the writer of Hebrews says, without sanctification, no one will see the Lord. You know why? It is a necessary and guaranteed work when genuine justification has taken place in your life. We're saved in one single act of regeneration, which results in repentance and faith in Christ, and thus brings about a declaration of justification by God. But listen, if it is genuinely from God, it will produce ongoing acts of faith, which if taken as isolated incidents, such as James took this isolated incidents, he doesn't go back to Genesis 15 with Abraham. He doesn't go back to Genesis 17. He goes to this one place right here, the biggest work that Abram ever did in his life. And James says, see, his, his works justified him. You know what his works did? His works didn't justify him. His works proved that he was justified. Now, I hope that what you're thinking is something along the lines will prove that. Okay? Let's prove it. Let's turn to four passages in closing and let's prove it. Let's turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. Let's turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. Turn to the end of the prison epistles and you'll come to 1 and 2 Thessalonians. If you come to Timothy, you've passed them. Turn to 1 Thessalonians. I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. Paul says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting. Why? Because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. You want the evidence that you've been justified? Is your faith being greatly enlarged? Are you growing in Christ? That's the evidence of genuine justification. That your faith is forever being enlarged. That God's coming in and He moves out the boundaries. Then He moves out the boundaries. Then He moves out the boundaries. That's what the evidence of justification is. And see, when you read Acts chapter 8 and you read the, the illustration of Simon Magus from Samaria, what you find there is you find a man that as soon as the first test comes about in his life, he proves that he's not been genuinely saved. And Peter says, problem with you, buddy, is your heart's not been changed. Because genuine salvation grows. It grows. When you see somebody and you say, well, they made a profession of faith. But they didn't last but just a few months and they were out the door. Turn to Matthew chapter 13 and read the parable of the soils. Why are you so surprised by that? Jesus says that there is some soil that's like rocky ground. And some soil is like a seed that springs up quickly. And as fast as it springs up, it turns away. And other soil grows up, but the concerns and cares of riches and the things of the world choke the life out of it. But then there's that fourth soil. He says there's that fourth soil, and it produces fruit. Some 30, some 60, and some 100. But the important thing is, is that that fourth soil always produces fruit. That's Jesus' term. In Paul's terminology, your faith is greatly enlarged. You grow in grace. I always, I'm always concerned when, when I talk to somebody about, about are you in faith in Christ? And they immediately want to go back to something that happened 20 years ago. Okay, okay. When you ask me how old I am, I don't say, well, I was born in a woman's hospital in Indianapolis, Indiana on June 25th, 1966 to Sharon and Charles Edward Shields Sr. The room number was such and such, such and such. I don't do that. I'm, I'm 37. I'll be 38 next month. In fact, I don't look back. I look forward. Listen, the alternative is a lot, is a lot, the alternative of looking forward is not, as, is not bad. 
I'd rather look forward than say, well, I, I don't know if I'll make 38 or not. When we talk about your faith, do you have to go back 20 years ago? Nothing wrong with going back there and knowing where you've come from. What, what about yesterday? Was your faith enlarged any yesterday? What about last week? Last month? What about tomorrow? You see, genuine faith is always enlarging the box. It grows. Now, we don't put this weight on your shoulder that says, you got to do this to be saved. No, no, no. Hear me out. you got the cart before the horse. Genuine justification brought about by God produces faith that enlarges itself. Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Turn past the book of Hebrews now. Turn past the book of James. Come to 2 Peter, right before 1 John. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Notice what Peter says. Peter doesn't say, Well, if you know for certain that at this point in the past that you've had a Genesis 15, 6 moment of conversion with God, that's all that matters. That's all that matters. Peter doesn't say that. Look what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing you. Some cavalier attitude that says, yeah, God saved me when I was in, 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 in VBS when I was seven years old. And well, I, don't, I, I know that we're in trouble when somebody says, well, I don't live like I should. I don't go to church like I should. I don't read the Bible. I don't give anything to the work of the kingdom. But, but nothing, you're going to hell. You're lost. You're lost. Don't, don't, don't give me no but when I was seven years old. I don't know what happened to you when you were seven years old. But this book says that when God justifies a sinner, their faith is greatly enlarged. That does not mean that we don't have struggles. That does not mean that we don't have periods in our life where we dip and struggle. Jesus said to Peter, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you. And when you are restored, or when you return, go and strengthen your brothers. In other words, you're going to fall flat on your face. We're all going to have that period in our lives. We're all going to have those struggles. But the issue is not do you have periodic struggles. The issue is, is the only thing you can claim to do is periodic spiritual growth. Why do I have periodic struggles, not periodic spiritual emotional experiences? Turn back to James 2.26. Now let me reconcile and close by letting the two authors speak for themselves. Let's see if we can get James and Paul to shake hands and agree and say, we mean the same thing. Look at 2.26. Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Don't, 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 uh, don't make the mistake of trying to say that James was a legalist. James believed that you had to work your way into heaven. James is saying this. If your faith is alive, it will prove it by works. He's not saying work your way to a living faith. He's saying prove that you have a living faith with your works. One more turn and we're done. Galatians chapter 5. Right after the book of 2 Corinthians. Galatians chapter 5. I hope that doesn't bother you when I give you little pointers in finding these. I know the books of the Bible, but sometimes in the heat of the moment, I get a brain cramp, and it helps if somebody gives me a little pointer. Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. Here's the bridge between James and Paul. You want the bridge? Here it is. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, Chapter 5, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. Let me give you a updated, an updated unpacking of that. Neither baptism nor unbaptism means anything. But, but what, Paul? Let me tell you what means something, Paul says. Faith working through love. Faith that works. All of a sudden, James and Paul don't seem to be saying contrary things, do they? James says, if you've got a faith, you'll have works. And Paul says, you know what? 
Circumcision and uncircumcision doesn't mean anything. Baptism and unbaptism doesn't mean anything. But what means something is faith working through love. You see, the difference between the legalist and those who are saved is the legalist works begrudgingly. I've got to go to church or, I, or I'll lose my salvation. I've got to go to church or, or what are they going to think? And I've got to do this and I've got to do that. That's the legalist. But those who have been justified by grace through faith say it is my joy to go and worship with my brothers and sisters in Christ. It is a, I, I read my Bible and sometimes I just can't put it down. I don't find myself looking at my watch going, how much more time do i got to spend in this to prove that I'm saved today? That ain't it. It's saying, wow, look at the Word of God. It's living and active. It's molding me. It's shaping me. I began this morning with a quote from Luther. So I'll close tonight with a quote from Luther. We're saved by faith alone. But if our faith is alone, it's not a saving faith. Justification is a single event that happens one time in your life. But if it's a genuine event, it'll produce ongoing acts of faith for the rest of your life. And if these ongoing acts are isolated out by themselves, they may even appear to be saving acts all over again. I mean, who hasn't had that in their life? Who hasn't had one of those moments post-conversion where God revealed something about Himself so big to you that you questioned Wow, did I just get saved? Or did God just expand my box? Those moments are great. Those moments are great when God says, Here, let me give you more of me. It's not because you need to be justified again. It's because you are justified and your faith is being enlarged. So God says, since your faith is being enlarged, let me enlarge your view of me. Paul and James were not at odds. They were just facing different enemies. They believed the same thing. We are justified by faith alone. But a justifying faith will produce works for the rest of our life. Let's pray and be dismissed. Lord, your word is good. It's good to struggle through these kinds of questions. It's a good thing to hammer out what, what does Paul and James mean? God, that's just one of many questions that we'll have as we read through the Scriptures. And I pray that you'd give us grace to know that whenever we think there is a problem, the first, the first place that we should look is in the mirror, not at the author of the text. God, help us live a life that shows that we have been justified I pray that you would enlarge our faith and that we would work through love. This will be for our good and your glory, for we are your people. God, now I pray that as we depart from this room tonight, I pray, Lord God, that if there's anybody here who is struggling with whether they have been saved, whether they have been justified or not, I pray that they would know that they can come and see me and we will set up a time and we will inquire privately and intimately together about the depths of their soul. God, I pray that whatever your Spirit is doing, that you would have your will and your way and be magnified in this body. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen.